From the book of Joshua, chapter 5, starting with verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. The word of the Lord. From the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 5, starting with verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Will you stand with me for the reading of our gospel? The gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 through 3 and 11 through 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to, fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, 
what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all of these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Those texts this morning, I mean, I, this doesn't happen every week, but this, this, those texts this morning, um, I get goosebumps reading them. They, um, there's something about those texts that um, really powerful as I was studying this week and looking into our story. Um, we are continuing in the season of Lent. Lent is the season of dependence, of, uh, we've got just a couple more weeks of this. We're in the fourth week, uh, fourth Sunday of Lent. And it really is a journey to the cross. Lent is walking and following Jesus as he goes towards his death, towards the cross. Now we see it as an anticipation of Easter because as Christians, we know what's on the other side of the cross. We know resurrection. So a lot of us, we walk through Lent and we go, Easter's coming. It's, it's going to happen. We look forward to that and that's beautiful. But we can't shortcut the cross that Jesus all along in all of our texts today is walking towards his destiny, which will be fulfilled in laying down his life. We talked in the first week about temptation and the draw that we have towards counterfeits to true worship. We talked about the next week, doubt and turning away from God. We talked about the following week, holy ground and the transformation and mission that we're called into when we're in God's presence and how God turns our weaknesses into strength. But today we look at this idea of God's provision in the wilderness. Lent is a season of wilderness. It's a, in the wilderness, you are kind of down to your basic instincts. You don't have all of the luxuries of life. We're down to kind of the core of who we are. And uh, in the desert, God is enough for us. Some of us are in the point of Lent. So today I wanna to talk about God as enough, enough. Some of us are at the point of Lent where we want to declare enough. We say, I'm done with this, but that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about how God is enough. Lent, this desert, makes us think about Spartan conditions, makes us think about the bare minimum. How many of you played with Legos as a kid? Okay, almost all of us. Um, I remember when I was a kid playing with Legos, one of my favorite things to do was to get my big bucket of Legos and all the Lego people and all the things and all the stuff and to pretend that I was a, uh, starting a new colony on a planet or in a place that had never been discovered before. And all I had was the resources in the Lego bucket to build this colony. Okay, so I could only build what is there. So you can't just pretend something's there. I can only build what's there. Now, what you find over time that's really interesting, and as I got a little older playing with Legos that I figured out, is uh, I would build this colony of people and you'd find that I had a lot of weapons, 
A lot of Legos come with a lot of weapons. So I had plenty of weapons. My people were gonna be very safe on this colony, okay? They had plenty of weapons. But um, some of the basic necessities like food, <laughs> beds, right? Bathrooms are not in your usual Lego sets, okay? So you're kind of at the basic conditions. What, how can I survive? How can I live in this kind of way? And the Christian walk is about trusting God for our very basic needs, our everyday needs. Now, there's nothing wrong with God blessing us in abundance. That's good. That's wonderful. So I'm not saying when we say we trust God for our very basic needs that there's anything wrong with that rich people are more evil than poor people. I mean, we're not saying that. In fact, God often uses the wealth of certain people to bless others in the world, okay? Rich people are not more evil than those who live day to day. We know this. But the reason why Jesus seems to come down so hard on rich people on people who have a lot and people who have in abundance. The reason why he comes down so hard on them in the Bible is because it's so incredibly tempting to trust in those things that we have, to trust in our wealth instead of trusting in God. It's so tempting. There's nothing wrong with having wealth, but it becomes so tempting for that to become counterfeit worship. In fact, the center of all false worship, we can say, on counterfeits, on turning away from God, the center of that is trusting in something other than God for our day-to-day -day survival. Trusting in something other than God for our day-to-day -day survival. In our Old Testament text today, God says to Joshua this powerful statement, today I have rolled away from you the disgrace of Egypt. Today, I've rolled away from you the disgrace of Egypt. God is saying to Joshua that the disgrace that they experienced from their slavery and captivity in Egypt is gone now, that he's removed that, that he's called them into something else. Now, if you know this great story in the Old Testament, you know that the children of Israel have gone through the wilderness, okay? And they're at this point, kind of like we are in the season of Lent, where they're kind of at the end of the wilderness now. All right, but they haven't yet taken captivity of the land. They're kind of near the end of the wilderness. But Moses, their leader, has died. Those of you know the really um, sad truth of this story is that Moses, who the whole time is leading them through the wilderness and going, there's a promised land coming. This is where we're headed. That he actually himself never enters that promised land. Okay, so he has died, Moses has died. This guy, Joshua has taken over leadership and he leads them, and it's symbolically really powerful, over the river and into the promised land. So they're there at this point, okay? They've walked over the river and they're into this land that God has promised them, but they've not yet taken possession of the land. They're not victorious yet, okay? So they're in the land that God has promised them, but they're not victorious and it says in our story today that they ate the produce of the land. So this is the first time they're in the land and stuff is growing in the land and they can eat from it. It's powerful. God has provided for them. And it says at that moment, the next day, the manna ceased. So the stuff that came, there was this, if you don't know the story, when they were in the wilderness, there was this flaky bready stuff that came from heaven and they ate that and that's what sustained them through the wilderness, okay? So it's saying now that they've eaten the produce of the land, God's provided for them in this way, the manna stopped the next day. So God has shifted. Instead of providing for you this way, I'm providing for you this way. They were, when they received manna, they were daily aware of God's provision for them through this miraculous bread. 
They couldn't go another day without that bread coming down from heaven. They needed that bread. And now at this point, God provides for them in another way. They receive fruit, food from the ground. They begin to see God's provision, God's grace, the reality of this land that they've stepped into, even though they haven't taken possession of it. And if you read the surrounding passages, God gives them all these physical symbols to go along with this new reality that they have. Okay, so they're in the promised land and God gives them all these physical symbols to live out. They have rituals, they have memorials, they have naming that they do. One of the most significant and powerful signs in the Old Testament and symbols, physical symbols, is circumcision. Have you ever really thought about this or have you taken this for granted that this is the symbol that God gives his people that they are his people? Circumcision, seriously? Like this tangible, physical sign that they are his people. Talk about an intimate, (laughs) difficult, constant reminder of that reality, right? Don't think we need to dwell on that too long. I see people getting uncomfortable, but, um, but this circumcision is powerful. It's the symbol that is strong, but it's not just that. He gives them this symbol. So there's all these next generation of people that have to be circumcised as they enter into this land, which is strange in and of itself. But he also names a place according to what he's done for them. He gives them this ceremony in the previous chapter involving stones that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. What does this show us? I think one of the things that it shows us is our faith was never intended to only be intellectual or even only emotional or inspirational. That was never, our faith is not just something in here, not something that we feel. Our faith is always something physical too, okay? I've been in full-time ministry now for about 18 years. And one of the things I've learned is that worship that only inspires us, okay? Worship that only teaches us intellectually doesn't actually stick. And I know that's weird. I, I I know that's weird to say because we often focus so much in the church on right teaching and on inspiring people. But worship that's only intellectual and only is emotional doesn't really stick. And I've seen it time and time again. When people seek after inspiration, that inspiration eventually goes away. Either they're in a church that they don't feel like gives them goosebumps enough, or they themselves change. Intellectually, they may begin to doubt something. Those things don't always last. And God has always known this about us. Now, let me say, faith and intellect and emotions are important. They're an important part of faith, but they're not everything. Our faith and our worship is always embodied. We need a regular reminder that God is our source. And we need this reminder not only in our minds, but we need this reminder in our bodies that what we do, the ritual that we do matters. So the children of Israel are here in the promised land and they're eating the crops of the ground. They're tasting their inheritance, even though they haven't yet received it. And in this, they are developing patterns of worship that form them to remember who God is and who they are. I think this is very similar to what we do every Sunday when we receive of the Eucharist table. When we gather around this, we are receiving a foretaste of a coming future meal, the banquet that we'll receive when all is made right in the world. We are receiving the fruits of the ground 
even though we do not yet see the world as it should be. We're seeing this foretaste, this meal is, okay, the land has not yet been taken possession of, but yet we are receiving the fruits of the ground. We are seeing a foretaste of that reality. This is a sacrament is what we call a heaven meets earth moment. This intersection of heaven meeting earth. We are tasting God's kingdom. Even as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We see this inbreaking of the kingdom moment. That's what it means to be a sacrament, a foretaste. God is sustaining us through his body and his blood, providing for us in this moment, even though we don't yet fully know this new world. Does that make sense, kind of? It probably shouldn't make fully sense because <laughs> it is still mystery and it's, it's kind of scary and intimidating, but it's a foretaste of this new world. And that's one of the reasons for the ritual behind it, okay? I've been in all kinds of communion services in my life. I've been some where the priests are vested. They have very specific body movements and hand movements. In fact, that's one of the things as part of my priesthood ordination that I'm being trained in is all those very specific things that the priest is supposed to do. And um, I'm really bad at it, by the way. I think I've told you this story that when I was in training, my last training for the priesthood, that I was asked to assist the, the priest, the bishop who was presiding over the meal. And gosh, I have never felt like I bombed at something public so bad. You know, I've had a few times where I've sung songs publicly and I've sung off key. I do better at speaking than a lot of other things, but this was a moment that I was just, she had to at one point grab my arm and drag me along with her in order to get me in the right place, right? And a lot of that is just, it's, yeah, just learning. It's a process that's it's learning a different kind of language. But there are some churches like that. And the reason why I'm learning that is not so that we do all those things at sacrament. We never will. But in case I'm in a context where that's what they do, then I can participate and join in, okay? So I've been in services where they do that full thing and they, the, they're vested and they have very specific rituals that they do. And then I've been in services before where we're at a youth camp or something and the pastor comes up says a quick prayer, and then, you know, maybe this is the best bread we can find is this rainbow bread here, and we've got some grape juice, and everybody come, right? But no matter what services I've been in, there's always some kind of ritual to it. There's some sense of this moment is important, and what we do matters. Why? Because we are creatures of ritual. We are formed by what we do over and over again in our lives. And we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded in our minds, in our bodies, and ultimately at the core of who we are in our hearts of God's faithfulness. We need to be reminded that this is all we need is Christ. We don't need to go after anything more. We don't need to seek wholeness in our lives through money and sex and power. We need God. The thing about ritual is that they may not be powerful for you emotionally every time, okay? And that's okay. There's gonna be some times where you come to the communion table and you are moved. Something has happened in the service and you are moved. There are gonna be some times where you come and you go, this is what we do again, <laughs> just every Sunday, right? And it's okay if the latter may be more than the former. You may not be struck by the words that you're saying every single week, but one of the things we're doing is we're trusting something is happening in us, in, in this ritual, in this thing that we're doing over and over again. 
And we are not just a people who receive the sacrament. We are the people who become a sacrament for the world. We are embodying a heaven meets earth moment. So that means that we live differently. We live as if we see God's new world in full. That's what God's people do. We live as a people of faith, hope, and love. So in our world, when it looks like we live in a world where death reigns, we live life. When it looks like brokenness is everywhere, we live wholeness and healing. When it looks like everything's hopelessly divided and hateful, we are loving to our enemies. Just as we are reminded, we remind a broken world that our God is enough. He is all that we need. In our gospel text today, Jesus tells a parable that may be really familiar to you. As you read it today, maybe there were some things that stood out to you that were a little different, or maybe you go, I know this story. I know the story of the prodigal son. And the context of this story is that Jesus is being challenged by the Pharisees because he's welcoming and eating with sinners. And we have a man in this story with two sons. The younger one has a desire to have more than what has been provided for him in the moment. He wants more than the enough that his father has, okay? And so he's itching for his inheritance. I want that money. I want that thing. I couldn't help but think about my daughter when she's earning her uh, allowance money over time. And she's going, well, can I just get that toy today? I know I don't quite have enough. Now what, well, (laughs) she'll say, didn't you make enough money this week, dad, (laughs) to be able to just fill in the gaps here? She doesn't say that, but... um, So he's given his share. Now in this world, um, people weren't liquid. They didn't have like cash sitting around. So probably what's happening is the father's having to go to the town square and figure out how do I divide up kind of the deeds for my land or how do I get, you know, what do I do in order to get this kid off on, on the road? So the whole community is in on this thing that's happening with his son. And his son wastes everything. And a famine comes and the son is not prepared. Now, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Enneagram. I know a few of you are. It's a personality typing system. And if you are an Enneagram 6, which is the most common type, you are probably freaking out at this point in the story because you are all about security and support in your life. And you're going, this kid wasted everything. Of course he's not prepared for the famine. Of course he didn't have enough saved. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, he wasted everything. This guy was frivolous. He wasted it all and now he's unprepared. But notice the younger son's problem was not so much that he was unprepared as much as he didn't trust in the provision that he had in the father's house. He didn't trust in that, that that was enough. He didn't trust that his inheritance would come in due time. So he sought to get his inheritance in a different kind of way. Somehow when he became rich, he became poor at the same time. The famine came and he was in need. So he hired, this is the comical part of the story. I mean, it's sad, but it's comical. He, he hired himself out to someone to feed pigs. So that's his job. And apparently that didn't pay very well. So he wanted to actually, he couldn't feed himself. So he wanted to eat the food that the pigs had. The young man then begins to reflect on how his father's servants, his father's hired hands have more to eat than he does. So the son has an idea, a great plan. I will go back to my father. I'll confess my sin. I'll tell him I'm not even worthy to be your son. Can you just make me one of your servants? Like, can you make me one of your hired hands? That's the plan here. 
Well, the story says that he's walking back to his father. I can imagine he's kind of rehearsing this thing in his mind. Not worthy to be your son. Just make me one of your hired hands. And while he's still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son, the story says. He wrapped his arms around him and he kissed him. Now notice, the son hasn't said anything yet. Anything. He hasn't even repented. He hasn't confessed his sin. He hasn't told him that he's blown it. He hasn't said that he's not worthy. The father just embraces him. He's just walking back and the father runs after him. He hasn't even made it all the way back. (laughs) Maybe he gets distracted on the way back and he could go away. No, he hasn't even made it all the way back and the father runs after him and embraces him. That's because the father's heart for his son was not dependent even on his ability to acknowledge his screw up. His his love is even bigger and greater for that. So the events happen in a different order than the son imagined them. He thought, I'll confess, and then my father might include me as a servant. But the father's inclusion was not even based on his repentance. God's love for us is not based on anything we do. God's heart and God's embrace for us is not based on anything that we do at all. Then, after the father's embrace, after he's experienced God's love, the son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to become your son. This order is so different than we often think. We often think, I'll confess my sin and then God will love me and wrap his arms around me. No, God already loves me. And in the context of that embrace, in the context of that love, we can say, I blew it. I missed the mark. Confession does happen. And let me say this, confession is a necessary part of healing. Confession is not necessary for God to love us, but it is necessary for us to be healed and whole, okay? And before the son can finish his proposal, before he can tell the father the great new idea that he has, I'll become one of your servants, the father interrupts him again. The father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The embrace of the father was not grounded in the son's moral uprightness, but confession is part of the process of healing. When we choose other things to place our trust in, When we forget that God is enough and we look for other things to fill our needs, it is always, 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 always in God's heart to forgive us. He doesn't do it reluctantly. He doesn't go, okay, I guess this one time I'll forgive you. No, it's who he is. He is forgiveness. He wants reconciliation. He wants healing. He is the forgiving God. He desires to forgive and heal us so much that Christ died for us. He took the violence, he took the sin, he took the brokenness upon himself so that he could conquer it, forgive us, and heal the broken world. And somehow this forgiveness is a personal thing between us and God. Jesus Christ is our only mediator. So we don't need someone else to forgive our sins. So we don't confess our sin to one another in order to get right with God. Like, or in order to get, excuse me, in order to be forgiven by God, okay? We don't need any other mediator. God does that. 
And yet somehow the process of us receiving forgiveness, for us experiencing that forgiveness, for us walking out that forgiveness towards healing happens in community. James 5.16 says, therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so that you might be healed. So confession leads us to healing. St. Augustine said, the confession of evil works is the beginning of good works. So you wanna know how to live good works? Start confessing your evil ones first, okay? Now the rest of the story is so interesting. Um, There's another brother in this story and he never left, he stuck around. And he sees that his brother is back and it makes him really angry. (laughs) This guy left us, he didn't trust us and what was originally given to him, he didn't trust that God was enough. He wasn't patient, he was reckless. And now you're just gonna welcome him back. And I've been here working for the father forever. I've never disobeyed. And the father said to him, son, you're always with me and everything that's mine is yours but we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Jesus is specifically addressing an issue in Israel at the time. The children of Israel always knew they were God's chosen people. They were the sons of God. They were the children of God. And they believed that the way to live as God's chosen people was to obey the law perfectly, to follow the ways that God had given them. And that was true. They were called to live by the law. They were called to live in covenant community with God by obeying the law, and it was true. But the Pharisees, this particular political group, had created a system where they not only didn't tolerate sin, but the law had become so specific and so narrow as to ensure certain levels of purity. And they were to keep people who were not pure on the outside away from the inside group. Well, what's the problem for that? Hasn't God's heart always been that the people would follow him and follow the law? Well, sure. But the whole point of the law in the first place was for Israel to be a light to outsiders, for Israel to be an invitation to the world. By how they live, they were to show that God is embracing and loving and healing and forgiving, that the God who created them loves them. That was Israel's mission from the very beginning. That's the whole point of the law. So the prodigal son is an illustration of the part of Israel that went astray from the law, that didn't follow the codes, that squandered the blessings that God had given them. Sleeping with prostitutes is an illustration in the Old Testament for worshiping pagan gods. So they turn to pagan gods. And then even rolling around with the pigs (laughs) is an illustration of, think about what a pig means in Judaism right? It is the animal that you're not supposed to go near, let alone eat its food, right? So this is someone who's gone astray from the food laws. This is somebody who's disobeyed God, turned to false gods, squandered God's blessing. The prodigal son represents the worst of sinners. And yet God reminds them that welcoming the lost has always been God's heart the entire time. If your food laws keep you from rejoicing when someone is forgiven and reconciled to the family, there's something wrong with how you're practicing your food laws. So it would be easy to say that this story is about a prodigal son who ran away and a good son who got jealous. We can make that easy. But really, this is a story about two lost sons, two sons who are equally lost. 
One didn't trust that the father was enough and took his inheritance and squandered it. He longed for something more than what he had in his father's house. The other son didn't trust that the loving father was enough and didn't trust that the father's character was good and true. He didn't trust that the father had enough to care for both the lost son who had returned and for him. When I first started writing this sermon, I was thinking, we don't have a lot of older brothers in our congregation. Um, We have a lot more prodigals in our congregation. After all, I never have to worry with you all that if someone who's lived a rough, squandering life were to walk in, that you all would look down your noses at them and judge them. I don't ever have to worry about that. We're just not that kind of community. But the deeper I began to peel the onion of this passage, the more I saw in myself and in all of us that um, all of us look at other people's lives and wish we had what they had. We go, why does that person get that? And I don't get that. All of us are subconsciously afraid that God doesn't have enough to go around and to meet all of our needs. That God really isn't just. How about that sketchy guy at your job who keeps getting promotions because he's just good at manipulating the system? Why does he get that and I don't? And I'm trying to live faithfully. What about the cute little family that always seems to be impeccably dressed in designer clothes, right? They're walking down one of the streets of Nashville and we go, why can't I have that life? They look so perfect, right? Or why does that person get to go on so many vacations? Gosh, seems like they're always somewhere exotic and cool. How do they possibly afford that? That's not fair. Must be nice. Or man, they have such a good relationship with their parents. I wish my parents weren't such a mess. I wanna suggest that all the root of all this is wondering, is our father really just? Does he really care that I've been doing all this stuff and yet they seem like they're the ones that have the good life? Both squandering and comparison are both a lack of trust. They're both going, our God is not quite enough. Jesus' parable reminds us that none of us have clean hands. We all have looked at our relationship with God and said, you're not enough. We've all squandered, we've all lacked trust. The Pharisees were confident that they were the ones who were clean, but Jesus tells them that they're just as broken as the squanderers are. And it's our sin that is ultimately heaped upon the Father on the cross. Some have suggested that the entire gospel is communicated in the story of the prodigal son. And so it raises the question, why did God need to do anything else other than just come and tell us that parable and then leave? Isn't that enough? But Jesus didn't just teach the prodigal son. He lived it. In the cross, we see the father's wide open arms towards us in all of our guilt and shame. He is reconciling us to himself. When we confess our sins, we're not doing so in order to earn something. God doesn't wait for us to confess in order to love us. He's already pursuing us. But what confession does is it allows us to reveal our brokenness in order for it to be healed. We need a diagnosis. We need awareness in the context of God's light and love so that we can be truly healed. 
So how do we confess our sins? It's a really practical question. Like, what does it mean for us to confess our sins? Well, first of all, we have to admit that we have sinned. For a lot of people, that's actually a really big hurdle. Some people think they're pretty perfect, right? I don't know of you, but but some people think they're pretty perfect. We have to admit we have sinned. When we do this, when we confess our sins together before we come to the table, we're saying, God, search my heart. Reveal the things that I've done that lead to brokenness instead of wholeness. The next step after recognizing that we have sinned is we confess these to somebody else. This doesn't have to be a priest or a pastor. It can be, Um, but all of us carry each other's burdens. You wanna find somebody in your life who you trust, who you know loves you and cares for you and is community with you, who has demonstrated in their life that they love unconditionally with the love of Christ and that they won't be horrified by what you say, (laughs) okay? There are people who have earned that trust. If you don't have that trust in your life, um, then let's talk. Let's try to see if we can figure out who those people are or maybe where those people are for you. Um, But find somebody in your life who you trust and you know who loves you. Perhaps they understand because they know they've been forgiven of their own stuff. We don't confess our sin to somebody who just thinks they're perfect all the time (laughs) because they may not be very helpful. But somebody who is able to go, I've got my own stuff that I've wrestled with too. We also don't just wanna go around and tell everyone in the church or everyone in our lives our deepest, darkest stuff because we can't trust everybody with that, okay? Not everybody can be trusted. But I wanna make a promise to you. I promise when you do this, I promise when you do this, you will begin to feel a weight fall off of you. There is something so beautiful about confessing our sins and inviting someone else into our story. I've experienced that. There is a weight that falls off of you. When someone else is involved and hears your sin, it also opens the door for change to happen. That person knows your stuff and can help you seek help in your life. For some sins, that just means sharing updates, talking about how we're doing, you know, did, how'd that anger go this week? Did it get out of hand? You know, how is this, how are you dealing with this? Talking about tools and strategies, other spiritual disciplines to help in the future. And for other things, it may involve outside support. And there's no shame in that. Counseling is awesome, okay? It's wonderful. Recovery groups are amazing. Like these kind of things can be really helpful towards healing. And again, that's the purpose, healing and restoration. And the foundation of all of that is God's embrace, the Father's embrace of us. The Father's open arms, relentless pursuing love. Our God is more than enough. And my prayer for our community is that we could trust in his enoughness that we could know that we are safe in his arms, that he cares for us and that he is good all the way through. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this story of your pursuing love, that you don't leave us alone in our sin, that you don't reluctantly maybe welcome us back if we do enough things. But Lord, while we were still far off, that you ran after us with open arms. Lord, we thank you even in the midst of our squandering or in the midst of our comparison with others that you are good and that you're ready to welcome us back. Our prayer today is as we step out these doors that we would be a sacrament, a sign of heaven and earth meeting, 
that we would share your generosity, that we would share your enoughness, and that we would be a sign of your redeeming and reconciling love. We trust in you today and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.